here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome back to our uh, Del Niente's Fellow Travelers podcast. I am delighted to be joined uh, by the great Hilda Paredes. Um, one could say that Hilda Paredes is one of the leading Mexican composers of her generation, um, but I think I'd rather just keep it simpler and say that she is just one of the great living composers. Um, just a little bit of her, just a little background, and then she can tell us more about it. Um, uh, she studied at the National Conservatory in Mexico City with Mario La Vista, um, Mario La Vista, excuse me. Um, after this, uh, she uh, has lived in Great Britain since, um, th in the UK since 1979, where she studied with Peter Maxwell Davies, Davies Harrison Birtwistle, and Richard Rodney Bennett. Um, I could read a list of all the ensembles that she's worked with, but you would get very bored quickly because it's simply all of the great ensembles and players of the world, um, including people like Ensemble Intercontemporain, the Hilliard Ensemble, Ensemble Moderne, um, Ensemble Recherche, Ensemble Signal, Ensemble Suspeso, ICE, the London Sinfonietta, the Arditi Quartet, just a who's who of the great new music performers in the world. And she's also extremely pro prolific, having written in really most major genres, um, including including opera, ensemble music, solo music, uh, you name it. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Hilda Paredes. Uh, welcome, Hilda. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great it's honor a, to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'd love to hear if you, um, I think you have a really uh, interesting and unusual set of cultural kind of intersections that I think make, make your music like truly special and unique. Um, being a, a, a composer who's from Mexico and still retains very deep roots in Mexico and who's lived in the UK for a while and who's also really interested in Indian classical music. Um, I wonder if you want to talk about the background that you have in any of those areas, just open-endedly. Well, yes, I have a very, so it's like a mixed bag of of opportunities I have come across my my way during my life and um, uh, I actually started learning music when I was a child because one of my classmates his father was a composer mm. and he was teaching in the garage of his of his house uh, in the garage of his house yes he was teaching children he was a composer and he was devising all this incredible music taken from the um, uh, nursery children's Mexican music. He would adapt it to, to teach children using Mexican percussion, including the Aztec. Uh, he had them built specifically for this purpose, tiny little uh, huevedles, which is can be really big that were used by, by the Aztecs. Little marimbas that he had specially devised for, for the kids. Oh, wow. wrote these incredible adaptations, recreations, real composition based on on the songs and games we used to play in those days. We used to be able to play in the streets. <laughs> no longer possible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was very lucky because I was introduced to music through an incredibly creative uh, uh, output that this man made. And it was fun and I learned a lot. So I guess I grew up being a little bit naive about what, what music was really about, meaning that the, the kind of training I underwent when I became a teenager. Uh, 
And, um, and so that was all in that, that's all in Puebla in, in Tehuacan, is that? City in Mexico. I grew up in Mexico City. Okay. So that was my first encounter with music. The name of this composer is Cesar Tort, and he's he's he ended up creating a school a school that is still active in Mexico City. Um, and then as a teenager, uh, I went to the conservatoire, as you said, and uh, I. Mario invited me to all these crazy concerts for which there were not uh, big audiences, just mm -hmm. a handful of people. And people like John Cage, um, Senakis, and Luigi Nono visited Mexico in that period in the mid 70s and late 70s. And that was a turning point for me. Mm. That really did things to my head. And, and um, for some reason, I was no longer interested uh, in rock and roll as much as I was interested uh, okay. in in the music of 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 these guys. For me, this was really way out. And so, and you were interested in rock and roll for a while. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. I was a teenager. No, I think I was a pretty normal teenager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Beatles. I learned my English through the Beatles. Really. Oh, yeah. wild. Okay. Oh, so um, I. Is a, my Spanish is a work in progress. It's getting better. But yeah. the way that I'm learning Spanish is to actually listen to Spanish radio in Chicago. Oh, right. So th this yeah. is the way that so so similar story. But anyway, please, yeah. please go on. Um, so then um, after a few years, I left the country um, with a small, small suitcase, my flute and uh, an incredible heavy load of dreams in my <laughs> and I arrived in London and I started to become acquainted with a lot of new music and soon after that I went to an Indian music concert and this really blew my mind again you know and I thought what is this what how does this work and at that time I was really questioning and wondering how how do we how are we able as composer? I was not sure I was going to be a composer then. I had oh, written okay. only a few pieces by then. Mm. I was much more of a flute player then. I I didn't have grants, so I was trying to make ends meet through through playing my flute. Like playing in orchestras, playing chamber music, and such uh, thing. In London, no, I'm playing in the streets. I was a busker. <laughs> oh wow. In the okay. underground, and then soon after in Congada Market, uh, we just opened in 1980. So, and then I met other musicians, and we started doing chamber music, and we got a few concerts. And um, yeah, to be able to play in an orchestra, you needed to be in a musicians' union, and to mm. be in the musicians' unions, you needed to have a work permit, and all these other implications. And I needed to pay the bills, so sure. <laughs> my flute, and I went in the underground. <laughs> This is a the, 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 the international things that musicians share is a need to pay the bills. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and um, so so that's what happened in those years. Uh, but then 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 I was just thinking how to compose how to, how to structure a music without having all this sort of um, tonal. Uh, solid infrastructure, harmonic infrastructure that the great classical music has as uh, the 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 basis upon which very large frameworks are built so 
what happens when we lose that? And I was very interested in Lutoslavsky and uh, Ligeti and all, all the great composers of, of that, the last second half of, of the 20th century. Many of them came to London. So that was an incredible opportunity. Elliot Carter. Hmm. Um, so I was interested in, in, in finding all these ways, but structure was something that worried me. And when I heard uh, Indian music, that really did things to my head, having been as a child very close to percussion music. Oh, I see. Sure. How these rhythmic structures work in Indian music and how they signal the end of phrases and mm. how refined these superimpositions of rhythm can become maybe even much more refined than in classical music. Um, so this was this was my interest in those days. And this nourished a lot of my way of structuring phrasing, structuring of my pieces. And I co have continued to elaborate a lot. Uh, uh, but this was like the point of the parties, all, all the different points of the parties for me. And then in, in addition to all of that, you, you worked with, with some of the, the, the great UK composers as well. Yes, I, was, I went to Darton Summer School mm -hmm. and I, I, that's where I met Max, Peter Maxwell Davis, and that's where I met uh, Harry Petwistle, and I did a film course with Richard, uh, Richard Ronnie Bennett, and I also went to Siena, I did a course also with Donna Tony, mm. uh, but I didn't get it. What was Donna Tony like? I hear he was a nut. He was, he was quite a character, quite, uh, he's a, f a very fine composer. Yeah. As teacher, it didn't work so much for me because uh, it was a matter of learning his technique to learn how he thought about music. And I was, at the time I went to study with him, I was too entrenched in devising ways that would work for me. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it was interesting to meet him and interesting to meet all the composers that were working mostly in France and in Italy. I mean, this is a totally fascinating story. I mean, I, I, I don't think I quite knew in detail that you had these sort of three distinct kind of uh, places from which you have developed your like really own very unique compositional voice. Um, that's, I mean, I really, I don't know another story like that, really, like that, that, uh, a Mexican composer who is looking for ways of structuring music living in the UK. And that's such a, just a totally unique, interesting perspective in the world. You know, it reminds me, um, you know, George Lewis, the composer, he has this notion of creolité, of kind of creolness of music, of different influences coming into play in different people's lives. And it really sounds like you're a great embodiment of that. That's a really fascinating mm -hmm. um, set of influences. Um, are there, uh, well, actually, so let me, let me maybe ask you about this. I mean, you did, um, we, I, there's a, a couple of pieces, at least that of yours that I really love that I'd love to just listen to a bit of and get your comments on. Um, and uh, one of them has a title in the Mayan language. And so I thought I might ask you about your Mayan language titles. I mean, and also just in general, I think for a U.S. audience, a U.S. audience may, maybe has a different relationship with its indigenous population than is the case in Mexico, where, I mean, Mayan is a language that's still spoken in the Yucatan and other places in, in Mexico. Um, you can buy Mayan dictionaries and, you know, you see signs in Mayan. Um, and so a lot of your a lot of your titles are in the Mayan language. And I'd love to hear 
um, just about your relationship with Mayan culture and and heritage, if you would like to say anything. Yeah, well, I am half half Yucateca. My oh. my mother was born in Merida. Oh wow! My grandparents, my grandfather, is the source of this interest because he was he was actually. Uh, bilingual, well, trilingual. He also spoke English. So, but he, as a child, was speaking Maya all the time. He was from a small town called Oshkushkap, mm. which is near uh, Ushmal. Oh wow! And actually, his land. He was he was a peasant. His land, part of his land, was the the ruins of Loltun, which is mm. part of the Rutapuk that some people know about, and. Uh, he he came from a very large family and he um, was the he, only one of his brothers and he were able to go to university and he became a doctor a pediatrician and because he worked for the um, uh, social health department mm. he kept moving moving so he left his native land and ended up in in Tehuacan, Puebla, which is where I was born. My my father is from there. Um, but uh, when I came to London, I I became, I started to, I, for, for your audience that are foreigners, uh, where you are an immigrant, you start becoming aware of what makes you different? Why are you different? Where mm. are you come from? So this was immediately uh, uh, something that happened to me very soon after I, I started living in this country. So I became very interested in my roots. I became very interested in in learning Maya. I started asking my grandfather to to teach me. So he would print all this. He would type in his uh, typewriter all these uh, pages of things, but he wouldn't talk to me. He would just give it to me. Oh, wow. So, so it's because of him that I'm, I started becoming interested. And, um, and then many years later, in 94, it was the, the Zapatista uprising. And I was living in Mexico, back in Mexico already at the time. I went back in, in, in 1990. Mm. And uh, this for me was a very interesting thing because I, uh, having studied a lot of Indian dance uh, and in Indian dance and Indian rhythms and Indian music. I studied also a lot about the context of this music. And I realized there was a parallel of two countries with great cultures that have been colonized. Um, so to see what has happened to the uh, indigenous communities in Mexico uh, was very strong for me. I felt a lot uh, of support uh, towards uh, the Zapatistas. You have to, for our US audience, you have to know that in Mexico, there's over 60 languages spoken as well as Spanish. Uh, some of these language, languages are in risk of extinction. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, so I, this, this became more of uh, a need for me to explore all this. Um, so uh, I also wrote an opera that talks about these issues, uh, El Palacio Imaginado, yep. that was premiered actually in the US mm. in 2003. 
and in this piece uh, the I use uh, I uh, it's based on the uh, story by Isabel Allende that's called also El Palacio Imaginado, part of the stories of Eva Luna. And uh, it talks about um, the introduction of the pieces. The story takes place in San Jerónimo, a place somewhere in Latin America, it could be anywhere, in which the natives that didn't die victims of unknown illnesses of or of tortures trying to convert them to other religions hmm. uh, or uh, victims of of abuse or so poor that nobody has bothered to extract taxes from them or so meek that no one recruited them for the war and they have become so skillful in the art of dissimulation hmm. that history did not record them <laughs> so this is the introduction of of um, El Palacio Imaginado. So the piece starts with a poem by Juan Gregorio Regino in Mazateco, and is followed by a poem in Maya by Briseida Cuevasco, someone I have wept exhaustively throughout many years, and the poems in Zapoteco by Natalia Toledo. And this is the universe of this population in, uh, in, in my opera. There's also lots of languages I recorded in situ that I, I did a lot of field research. Oh, okay, sure. So I went to Tehuacan and I recorded uh, three different languages, Nahuatl, Popoloca, and Chinanteco, and I recorded two ladies from Chiapas in Sotzil and Celtal. So there's just an incredibly rich um, heritage. Great. Ilda, thank you so much for this this like remarkable set of of stories you're telling. I mean, I think it's, it's, um, you know, of course, living in the U.S., um, you know, especially at this point in history, the U.S. has a very complex relationship with, with, with Mexico. And, you know, I would say that like the, the, the story of Mexican history is not well known in the U.S. And the, 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 the story of indigenous Mexican cultures is also not well known. There, there's a general awareness of Aztecs, the general awareness and some people know a, a bit about them. The people that have been to the, to the Yucatan might know about the Maya, but thank you for, for helping us understand like how, how, um, sort of how much culture is at stake there. Um, uh, may I underline please? also that all these poems, the poem by Juan Gregorio Regino, Viseida Cuevascov and Natalia Toledo, uh, they appear in the opera read by them and is contemporary indigenous poetry mm. that is actually published. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. Gosh, we should show you covers. They're just right behind me. Of oh, great. If you, if you, if you wish. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's do that. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I, of course I, I'd love to talk about your opera Harriet, but I wish I, we, we should have thought to, to talk about El Palacio Imaginado. Yeah. But maybe oh, we'll play some of that at the end. I could take a picture of books and send them separately for you. Sure, that's that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great, and we can just put them on the screen. That's perfect. Just for people that know that these languages are alive and there is literature, it's not just spoken, but they they are oh, amazing poetry. Amazing. This is thank, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy I'm gonna buy them after we get off this chat. <laughs> maybe if there are translations in Spanish. Um, Thank you so much. I mean, so maybe we could talk about one of your pieces that um, with a Mayan title, and it's a piece from I think 2000, 2001, 
Achpach Ob. I'm not, sorry, I'm sure I'm not saying that. Um, Say it again. Apashob. Apashob. I, I don't pronounce it very. Apashob. Apashob. Just a little gap. Apashob. With a little apostrophe, right? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it means those who make the music. So this is a piece by uh, that uh, was a commission f but, um, from Ensemble Modern. So it is very much a, a concerto for ensemble. Mm -hmm. So it has different sections in which different instruments are at the at the foreground, while the rest of the ensemble is in the background, and then another section where other instrument comes. Uh, the, uh, the introduction is is the whole ensemble with different layers, the groupings of of different groups of instruments, and then the the, the first section is is the horn solo. Not solo, only solo, but with with in the foreground. Mm -hmm. Then there's a transition with the two clarinets, then the flute, mm. and then I think it's uh, the oboe. Mm. Um, not the oboe, the choranglet. Oh, sure, right, exactly, the choranglet. Mm -hmm. It's not the choranglet that it's joined by by the lower section of of uh, the woodwind. Section like the bass clarinet and the alto flute, and then uh, the trumpet, the brass, the trumpet introduces a virtuoso, more rhythmic section. Mm -hmm. I want to listen to that section. I love that section. Yes. I mean, I love the whole thing, but that that's a particularly it's clever quite one. Also, yes, that's that's a lot of of that section is built on rhythmic cycles, which I invented taken from Indian music but I was wondering that actually so yes, thank you for actually, yeah. should, should we listen to that now I think um, yes sure I think uh, it's like I, I have written down that it's 1210 in the recording oh. but let's just let's see how that works it's a little bit before the trumpet I think but let's just try it and see if we if we um if you like this place Okay, great. We could. I. I mean, I just wanted to keep listening. I didn't. I just. I almost. You know, didn't stop it because I wanted to just keep listening. Um, but I love that so much. I love that you know the sort of like how unpredictable the trumpet rhythm feels, and then how you you set it up before that by instruments that are sort of getting you know the the, the speed the speed of the repeated notes is changing, and then you get the trumpet 
um, with, you know, different notes every time. And then um, these little, these kind of like crazy sounding interjections, then the trumpet returns and the trombone is sliding around below it, you know? Um, someone, someone said about one of your pieces, I read somewhere, someone said, sometimes your music is like boxing on ice. Oh, like, maybe. you know, and I kind of like that as an, that, that's kind of how part of that sounds to me where it sounds like, you know, uh, especially like the end of the piece, which we'll also play, it sort of feels like, you know, everyone's, you know, trying to keep their balance and like slipping and sliding all over the place. And it's just like, I think it's terrific. It just, it's such a great effect. Um, boxing on ice. That's what I thought of um, when I, when I heard that bit, but, but say something about that if you like. This section is built on the con contraposition of ideas. So, so I tell you where all these come from. Uh, my interest in Indian music was so, so deep that I ended up enrolling in an Indian dance class for two years. So I enrolled in, in this dance class and I was, I became a thief in the way that I would just go learn all these rhythms and would come back and transcribe them all in. Like a thief, you said? A thief of rhythm. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Yes, because yeah. I really like these intricate things. And one of the ones that was really one of my favorites, really, for the ending, the virtuoso of the dancer, and it goes like this. It's called Larry, and it goes like this. And I can't do it. So, <laughs> oh, that was amazing. But so, why was I interested in this? It's because of the contraposition of two ideas and one, how one gets shorter and the other one starts taking over. So, my thinking was what would happen if I have more than one idea? Mm. Yes. Mm and how one can take over and the other one disappeared. And mm. So in this, in this section, I think I have one, the trumpet player, the percussion one, the, the woodwind, the double tonguing. Mm. Um, I think I have, I think about four, four or five different ideas. That could, and then at the end, the whole, the whole, uh, and the, the, the sliding, uh, scale also and mm -hmm. um, so in the end uh, it becomes really manic feeling. yeah can okay. we listen to that bit the, the, the bit at yeah. the end with all the sliding yes. and maybe you can say a little more about it if you like yeah. um mm -hmm. yeah just i love i just because i love this just for no reason other than i want to hear it you know <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
Okay, we can stop there for a second. I just, I mean, I, I don't want to stop it, you know. I want to just keep listening. <laughs> um, but that's a good reason for people to go listen to, the, to that piece after um, after our, our, ta- our talk. I, I also love just just on a purely visceral level. I just love I, I just I love the glissandos in your music, which I think is a, is a pretty common um, gesture. But it's like the way you execute them somehow. It's like it feels like the, the trajectory is so clear. It kind of feels like you're skating or something. And then you land or something like that. It has like a very kind of like like a lot of like physicality to the gesture. You know, it's sort of like I feel like I can like project myself like, you know, you know, jumping off a hill or something like that. And it's like, feels like you're landing or something like that. I just, I love, I love the physicality of those gestures. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I just, I just think very much. uh, If I know the players, I think very much uh, about them, particularly in this, in this piece and a lot of the pieces I wrote in that period. Uh, If I don't, I make up a a character. So Mm -hmm. I very much. And so, and a lot of the conception, the original conception, even the harmonic language for each piece comes from from what the instrument gives me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I try to think, to get inside the instrument. Okay. And, uh, yeah. I think I have two questions about that. So I think, I mean, n- number one, so I'm, I'm interested, first of all, in you said, oftentimes you know the player, and if you know the player, you'll... Um, write with them in mind but sometimes you don't and would and then you'll make up something imaginary yes that's thing number one i want to ask about say more about that and the other thing is like getting inside the instruments i'd be interested in hearing more like uh, you know are you interested in the technique of playing or in the timbre or in the instrument's history or like and so but talk about the imaginary players first have you ever like imagined a player and then like met the actual player and they're totally different than what you imagined. And you're like, Oh, I wrote this part for this person. Who's not this. How does that go yeah. for you? Well, for example, around about the same time I wrote up a show, I, that year I also had a commission from the Melbourne festival to write a, a, a piano quintet. So I knew, I knew the quartet, I knew it was for the Adidas, but I didn't know this player who was in the other side of the world. Um, Michael Kieran Harvey. Mm. Uh, fantastic player very nice player so that's when i had to imagine what he was like but then i have the instrument and what the instrument can give me so i devised the i knew he was very good so um um yeah so i thought of someone pretty good to be able sometimes I have pushed the players beyond the limits and sometimes um, that's been so fortunate but in this case it worked out really well (laughs) I love this idea of writing for imaginary players that's the thing that I'm going to keep thinking about and so you were um, instrumentalist wise you were a flute player and a pianist is that right I'm a very bad pianist I was never very good. Okay. No, I, I say about myself that I'm a recovering pianist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yes. Well, at this stage, I'm a recovering flute player. Well, I was very good flute player, so it takes me a little while to get back, but it's all there, you know. When you have good technique, it comes back very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so, so yeah, your, no. your relationship with instruments, I'm just curious to know, like, yeah, are, are you interested in the player's relationship with it? Are you interested in the, interested in the technique, in the timbre? How do you approach just writing for an individual all instrument? That, all, all of that. I mean, you have to know know the instrument's possibilities um, and uh, and limitations. 
and familiar limitations, I be, I turn them into possibilities. You turn the limitations into possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's to know to know how far this can go into to do that. Um, uh, and sometimes, you see, the thing is, you were talking about technology earlier on. Um, I was a very late starter with technology. You know, mm. it was until I did El Palacio Imaginado in 2002, I really went in the studio and I really, uh, and I, I, I worked a lot in the studio, but I, I, I don't know as much as the young, younger gener generation. So I, um, to go, you go into the studio, I think every composer that has done that, that never went into an electronic music studio and suddenly goes there. I mean, you come back and you're never the same again, <laughs> you know? You come out of that and it, it really does things to your head, mm. working there, because you start thinking of sounds and music in a different way. So, um, when I go back to write acoustic music, I have to find ways of reproduce what I'm listening in my inner ear. That sometimes it's not a conventional way of playing it. So I need to go back to players and ask how can you do this? Can you do that? How do you do or yours also so sometimes by listening to other people's music, you know, you hear things and say, Oh, how did he do that? You know, mm. how did she do that? <laughs> you know. Um, and how far you can push these things. So in a way, my instrumental palette, my compositional palette has expanded because of of my relationship with technology. Oh, wild. So so this has been important. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I mean, that's such an interesting, you know, th that uh, th that's not an obvious outcome, but it's a great outcome, right? That That what would happen as a result of using technology is that you're relationship with the actual analog instrument would uh would change and expand that's really that's fascinating and, and an example of that you find these things in the other piece you were you were asking me to look at for our purposes is the symphonopera mm -hmm. a fairly recent piece and also answers the question is what how do you write when you know who you're writing i knew i was writing for example research and i know they play anything you throw at them so 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 I did that. So um, it's, it has quite a lot of extended techniques, that piece. Well, maybe we should listen to some of that. Um, that's this is like one of my favorite one of my favorite pieces of yours. Um, uh, and and ensemble recherche, yeah, indeed, they can play anything. I remember um, I did. I, I once worked with Barbara Maurer, the viola player from recherche, and I had seen recherche play a Ferniho piece unconducted. And you know it's it's just impossibly hard. And I was like, "How in the world did you play a Fernio piece unconducted?" And Barbara said to me, "Well, each of us goes away and does calculations on the tempos. And you know, for that piece, I think I probably spent twenty three hours doing calculations on the tempos. Then we get together and we argue about who's conducting what. And she said, "I usually win." So in any case, yeah, recherche can play anything. Let's um, is there? Uh, I have some, some some spots that I would love to listen to, but is there any any part in particular that you would like to hear? Uh, I can't think of. Uh, okay, just, why you choose. Okay, I'll start. Why don't we start at the beginning, um, and uh, then we'll skip around a little bit. 
you craft the, the track. Yeah. Yes, I've got to share my screen here again. Um, here we go. Oops, sorry, I didn't do that. So let's, let's, let's pause there for a second and then let's listen to one other spot and then I'll ask you to, to comment about anything you want to comment about. I do just love that opening, the way it's sort of like, it's very like hesitant and like, you know, t tentative as if like crawling out and seeing if it can go on and then it does go on and it's just really, you know, I, so I, I love that opening. Um, but let's listen to one other spot in the piece um, that I really love. Um, this is going to be... I don't know, maybe more than halfway through. Again, I, 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 <laughs> I just about let it play to the next excerpt that I was about to play just because I was having such a good time. But um, I think, you know, I just love the, um, yeah, I, I love sort of like you got this very intense noise texture and then like you move th from there to this kind of like 
glissando-y texture and you know the, the way the texture is like slowly um so, sometimes suddenly sometimes slowly like transition and they transition to like really not the thing that i'm expecting and so i really feel like on my toes as a listener um I, how do you feel about that that section this is for me very important the processes of transformation yeah and uh, and this is something i have thought a lot and took it a bit further something i remember peter maxwell davis talking about it but it didn't really click on in my head in those days until much later in life so so for me all these extended techniques and the inclusion of noise it's for me it's a, a very important uh, element in the range of expression that you can have yeah in music so uh, the processes of transform transforming one sound into something else uh, it's it's important. So sometimes for me, it, just talking about going back to talking about structure, the journey of a piece of music, the story that a piece of music tells you uh, goes through different stages. And sometimes to get from one place to another, how do you get from one place to another? You have the the moment of transition sometimes becomes the most the more important for me. Mm. Oh, okay. The, like the, the transition is more important than the, than the destination? Well, that's that's a challenge for me as a composer. How do I get from one idea to another? Yeah. And maybe sometimes that what I thought was a transition, I start finding more and more things and it becomes uh, uh, a section in itself. Mm -hmm. it, it, it varies. So, how, yeah, in terms of that's, that, that's interesting. I wonder how um, I'd be interested in hearing you talk about and maybe there's not one way you do it, but but it is um when you're when you're writing writing a piece like this work um sifonafore am I saying that right sifonafore and and it also has when we can talk about the kind of extra musical inspirations as well is it that you do you start a piece like that with an idea that okay here's a texture that I like here's another texture that I like um, here's some rhythms that I want to know how to use I'm going to start here and see how I can transition from this idea to this idea? Um, or is it, uh, do you just start at the beginning um, and let the process take the take the shape that it's gonna take? Or do you know exactly where you want to get by the end and you work backwards? How does the, just, how, how does the actual process of construct, constructing the form work for you? It's different with each piece. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of this piece, I knew I was gonna write, for example, Recherche, so, I knew I could just go for it without any reservations. Uh, I knew this was piece was going to be for Traitoria Festival mm. in Parma, in Italy. And I know the director, Martino Traversa, a very fine composer as well. And I know how, how much he supports real avant-garde music and how 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 strong he feels about keeping this festival going despite everything that goes on in the country and how much he believes in 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 this and has no condescending doesn't condescend um it has he has created an audience of people interested not a huge audience but people that are interested so this was for me was important so uh when i was Thinking of this piece, I saw the sculpture of Thomas Glassford in Mexico City in El Museo del Chopo. And uh, for me, this piece 
uh, talking about shape, the shape of this piece from, uh, of this sculpture is the way the way the sculpture is is just growing. Mm. You know, it doesn't have a preconceived idea, preconception. It just lets the ideas flow. So I will show you. I will screen share the photo I took from underneath this very huge sculpture. Mm. Um, I think it's several feet long. So you can. Oh, wild. Yeah, so it's taken from underneath. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a good five feet long, if not more. This yeah. is huge. But this is from how it falls in. So it's just the shapes are just growing out of it. And it's very beautiful, I think. Yeah, and, and yeah, um, I've seen a, a photo of the other, and we'll show a photo of the other angle as well the sort of straight on angle of course it's a very beautiful it's beautiful to just sort of look at face yeah. to face but i think this this photo really does sort of capture uh yeah the kind of like weirdness of the growth i guess yeah. if weirdness is the right word you know or like the kind of unplanned it looks unplanned even though obviously it's planned well um, it, it, who knows uh, yeah. uh, the name is a scientific name is the scientific name for the jellyfish mm. so and funnily enough I got stung by a jellyfish just before that. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's what that's what some of those like you know. I didn't think of it until afterwards. Oh dear. <laughs> that's really funny. So some of those things at the beginning, those. Yeah. It's like the jellyfish stinging you or something. Another thing, along those lines, in terms of like the marine animal um, that this is named after, in addition to the, to the sculpture, I sort of like um, watching ensemble research play. I also sort of get the sense, like watching them, they look like a jellyfish or something like they, they, they like as an ensemble, they, or they, they look like some sort of marine animal that is like, has many, many tentacles and many like moving parts, you know? So that's kind of somehow they capture the energy of, of the marine animal, even though I'm not sure if that was intentional, but it's, um, and, and they play without a conductor. So they know each other's movements. So it's like they're part of the same organism, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's amazing. It does look like an organism. It looks like, you know, you can just imagine them like moving slowly throughout the ocean, just waiting to like sting an uns unsuspecting composer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I wonder if I want to listen to the, um, can we just listen to one more bit of, of this piece? Cause I like it so much. And then I, I do want to hear about, about Harriet, of course, because that's a, yeah. that's a fascinating piece as well, but let's just listen to just a tiny little bit of Siphonophore.
okay, we can stop. We can stop there just for one second. And the thing that I love about, um, yeah, about your transitions is what, what in that clip, it's like we have, um, you know, there are these little crescendos, and then an articulation, and that happens for a while, and the durations change. And then sort of underneath it, you start introducing some scalar figures, and like the balance slowly changes of like the crescendos to the scalar figures. And like, so it does feel like this kind of very natural and seamless transition. Um, so yeah, again, I just, I think it's just such a great, it's, it, 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 I, you know, this is an overused word, but I think it's the only one that occurs to me in this, in this context, but it feels like very organic. Thank it does you. feel like an animal, you know, just what an animal might do, you know, just sort of walking around. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, I, I love the piece. I hope everyone listens to it. Um, we should, um, I'd love to hear, so you, you have written operas um, and and your mo I think Harriet is the most recent one, right? Yes. Um, and so, so th I think this is um, it, it's a it's an unusual story, and or it's a well known story in a way, but it's an unusual subject for an opera, um, and it's also an unusual instrumentation. So I, I just love to hear anything about the inspiration for Harriet, um, and how you approached this subject, um, and also how you approached writing for the instrumentation, and anything you want to say about the piece. Well. Uh, back in 2012, um, uh, a very good Mexican writer whom I had collaborated in another musical, music theater piece, uh, uh, Jorge Volpi, so very established writer, he became the um, director of Festival Cervantino, which mm. is one of the most important festivals in Latin America. And he is an opera lover. And he wanted to, he started this program called uh, uh, OM21, Opera Mexicana, Mexican mm. Opera from the 21st century. And he commissioned six composers to write operas. I was the last one. My opera was due to be premiered in 2018, which is when it was done. And... Um, uh, very soon after that, I, I went to the offices and I started realizing that the budget, although it's a very important festival, the budget for this, this uh, each opera was pretty restricted. So I had this wonderful idea of a big opera I wanted to do. I still have. I want to do this. It's a science fiction opera, which I haven't written yet. But I realized it was not possible with those resources. So I, I really had to, I thought I'm going to do a monodrama. One singer and maybe two or three instruments. Maybe that's it. So I came back and I talked to my dear old friend, Clarence McFadden, um, American singer from Rochester, but living in, in Amsterdam for many decades. And an extraordinary, versatile, wonderful wonderful artists, all-around artists. Um, and she told me, I said, well, uh, my dear, it's about, we're friends for a long time, it's about time we do something and I have this, this option, you know. And then I had various ideas, but she said, well, I've always wanted to do something uh, on Harriet Tubman. And uh, me, like everyone in this part of the world, didn't know her didn't know anything. I know it's a, it's a real icon in American history, but it's not known so much outside. I hope now more, mm. not just because of my opera, but the film and all the issues with a $20 bill and all these things. Right, 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 sure. 
so that was the beginning of my journey of research and discovery of this extraordinary woman, which appealed to me immediately because all my operas have, have had something to do with uh, humanitarian, political and gender issues. I, I don't talk about gender issues, never never have done, uh, only recently because people ask me, but uh, it has come out in the, the music I've written for the stage. Mm. Um, and then I had a meeting with um, Guy Cullen, the director of Music Theatre Transparent, which uh, Claren was an artist in residence there, I think still is, but I, I'm not sure. And I know Guy for a very long time and I told him the story and he said, yes, go for it. But of course, again, there was a limit of resources. So uh, we had, uh, I could choose three instruments. I said, well, the more I researched, the more I thought I can't do this. And, and three instruments that were fairly portable. So no piano, so mm. violin, uh, guitar, and percussion, percussion because I, I can have many different sounds there. <laughs> percussion is a good hack. That way you can like yeah. you can yeah. cheat a bunch of instruments in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I said I have to have electronics, you know, because mm. without that, how do you, how do I tell the story of this woman without more, you know? And then I I I search for different studios, and in the end, I went to 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 Sam to the the studios in Nice. Mm. And I worked there, and I I met my my assistant, a younger person. First time ever I worked with a lady, Monica Hill Giraldo was fantastic, fantastic person to work with. This is very important for me to have a good rapport with my my assistant because I'm not technologically trained. I know now I've learned I learned from them. I learned an mm. enormous amount from them from her. Um. And uh, and that's how it came about. And then from having very limited funds, people started getting interested and people studied. Then, then in the middle of all these years, Jorge Volpi suddenly left the festival and I said, oh, no, no, and became the director of the uh, the cultural director of the university in Mexico, which mm, a cultural yeah. institution is not just a university, it's like right. a real, real place to create art. So he took the project with him, so he helped us financially and like this. And then Music About got interested and they helped in the mm. production. So in the end, we were able to, and then the design we did know, and then through um, Cara, um, What's her name? Oh, this wonderful artist, Cara, Cara Walker, recommended Miwa Matrayek for the design. Mm. And then Jorge introduced me to uh, Mayra Santos Febres, a, a beautiful writer from Puerto Rico who had, knew a lot on the subject matter, but not very experienced with, with uh, librettos, so that was an issue. Mm. We needed more dialogue, so then that legs came in the end. This this is an issue for you for librettos. You know, you need it's such a deep, specialized thing. It's it's something I could talk a lot about, but I I won't mm. go. But 
the the project started growing and growing and and then and then it became what it became and it's been very appreciated we just recently Harriet won the I was composed as a war in December in this country in mm. in the UK so it was it was very very good because I think the story is is amazing and for me it was also had its challenges because the one thing I was fascinated with was to discover that because of the illiteracy of the slave population they had to find different ways of communicating. So one of the mm -hmm. ways they communicated was through music. So all mm -hmm. these rituals that we all now know uh, were used then to send messages to the, fu the fugitives or, or, or possible fugit fugitives uh, to, to help them escape the south, the plantations where they were uh, being kept as slaves to be able to go north. So for me to be able to do that research was fascinating and to integrate those into the, the, the dramaturgy of the music was uh, very important, not just as a, a form of illustrating or to be nice, but as, as part of the, of, the, uh, of the story that we're telling every single uh, uh, tune that appears was used uh, in the way it was uh, in the way that is used in the opera is the way it was done according to the research i did mm. so maybe maybe i pay you a next great that'd be great thank you of this now that we talked about this mm -hmm. so that would be around 30 maybe around there oh great let's go So this is when she escapes finally the plantation as she's hiding. I'm going to cross the line. My mom was just going to milk. 
I couldn't let her know. Doctor came riding up on his horse, but I had to tell her. I had to tell my beloved Rick. Turned around the saddle, looking at me as if there might be more than this. Doctor still gazing at me, still away to Jesus, still away, still. So this is, for example, no? when when you have to get ready. You so you, the, you this is a tune that was letting people know you to have get to get ready or to not. Wow. So she's trying to communicate, but uh, and the, the tick tick of the instrumentation for me is the pulse of the hearts. Mm. How you have to pretend nothing is happening, but of course you're terrified because of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. So it starts accelerating, and also you have to pretend everything is normal because the everything's normal. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's. I mean, just that 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 effect is so remarkable, and you get you get so much out of just those three instruments and the singer, you know. And it's like, and, and it's not even like a lot's happening, but somehow like the whole thing projects this 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 atmosphere of like incredible tension, you know, and uncertainty, and like. Um, but it's just three instruments and a singer. I mean, it's remarkably like parsimonious, I think. And, and, and then sort of like, it's, uh, and it feels like maybe it's kind of a dream state. I think at least I, I read it as like, it, it comes to me as if it's a dream state because you do have this recognizable tune that sounds like a tonal or like a, you know, a sounds like a, a, a modal tune perhaps, you know, with all this sort of commentary around it, like you say, like the pulse beating and like a kind of you know, the dreamy looking horse. So it's it, it's a, it's it's really um, dramatic, but also very uncertain and unsettling. I think in a really great way that that like I think conveys what you're trying to convey, which is like the tension and like the terror of that situation. Um, I mean, that's what opera can do. You know, you can get into the psychology of the characters, and you can relay many different situations at the same time. Something you cannot do with a text. Right. Right, right. No, exactly. It's like you do get a sense of the of the complexity of the character by like there's there's multiple modes of commenting on the psychology of the character, you know, based on how you have it set up. Um, fabulous. That's I mean, great. So that's and that's a, that's a um, that's the entire opera, right? There there is a video of the whole thing. Uh, I don't think it's available publicly. There's oh, I see. Okay. Excepts of of I see. video online, but. Um... Well, yeah, we'll we'll put a link to the to the um to the online uh to the to the excerpts um 
along uh, with the, with the show. Um, yeah, I mean, so is it being performed again soon? Um, well, we have a date for the 3rd of October at the South Bank in London, but uh, mm. with the current climate, I don't know what's it's going knock, to Knock on wood, right? At the yes. moment, well, at the moment, we're all, because everyone is in different countries, so if there's traveling restrictions, and, and also we don't know how many people are going to, I mean, the, the, the tickets were selling pretty fast mm -hmm. in February when it first went on sale. But I don't know how many people are going to dare to go out and sit next to each other. So, sure. So, yeah. I mean, this is going to be a, a long process, I think. Well, speak, yeah. speaking of which, I mean, if, if you want to say, how are you? I mean, you know, we're, we're recording this in the time of COVID 19. And uh, in the US, I think we just heard the other day that Chicago, our stay at home order has been extended. Um, and I know the UK has had um, obviously its own, own struggles. How are you holding up? Well, I mean, from in many levels, as a composer, you, you, I'm used to, I need isolation to create, you know, and uh, uh, and together with being uh, uh, self-employed sort of musician, I don't have a job as such, I create my own work, so I've been using my time quite, I'm quite busy, <laughs> <laughs> and always these Zoom meetings and stuff, so, um, so, yeah, it's it's difficult financially, of course, for everybody because so many things are cancelled. Um, and uh, it's given me a lot of food for thought for my next opera also, <laughs> which is, yeah. Yeah. is about, uh, yes, I'm trying to create a dystopian society. And I think this is giving me a lot of food for thought. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Honestly, yes. that's I'll be interested to see how you create a dystopian society because you yourself seem so non-dystopian. Um, uh, yeah, you know, well. <laughs> so maybe that means you have an imagination that can do it, you know? Well, I have um, to, yeah, I have to do a lot of research and read a lot of sci-fi also. But uh, but at the moment, reality is so surreal that it's giving, it's already giving me the kind of environment. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need inspiration. I will not be able to go out because the air has become so poisonous. That's yeah the environment for writing stuff okay that's it there we, that, let's just go straight there yeah. oh my gosh um um Ilda, it's, it's just a great it's a great pleasure to talk to you um it's really it's just you know um you know i was looking at my phone the other day and um the, so, so the the only silver lining of this whole awful thing where everything is canceled is that is that we get to talk i suppose um i was looking at my phone the other day and the notification showed up that Del Niente was meant to to have performed your your harp, uh, an ensemble piece called Demente Cuerta, just recently, and um, and we had to postpone that concert, obviously. Uh, and we're, we're we're looking forward to getting to do that piece in the fall. We're already planning to um, we're already planning to 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 to, to do it. So hopefully we'll have you in the in, be able to have you in the United States in the fall. But um, the only silver lining of having to cancel that performance was that it enabled us to have an opportunity to speak together and. Um, it's just such a pleasure to you're such an inspiring figure and such a great composer and hearing your life and your stories is just is um is remarkable thank you thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this it's yeah a, it's, it's a great honor. pleasure